Please rise. Court is now in session. All rise. All rise. Is it legal to a regular look at the legal system and you, a special production of the Missouri Bar? I'm Bob Pretty. And I'm Vera Fight. Vera, I've seen a report more than 8% of Missouri's population is veterans. Four point higher than the national average. It surprised me. And many of these veterans are facing issues such as disabilities, homelessness, bankruptcy, foreclosure, child visitation, custody, and support payments. Or problems with drug and alcohol addiction or long-lasting stress disorders stemming from their service. That's right. All of these issues are not only personal matters, but they are also legal matters. So we've invited one of our frequent volunteers at the Missouri Bars Veteran Clinics to join us today to talk about veterans and the law. Jeff Button is a private practice attorney in Creve Coeur, specializes in veterans law and social security disability, and he's been on the National Organization of Veterans Advocates Board of Directors. So Jeff, welcome to our program. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, Jeff. Wanted to touch base first on the history of veterans benefits. We know that benefits for veterans in general go back more than 225 years in this country to benefits for wounded veterans of the American Revolution. Can you give us some historical background on the country honoring our veterans? As you said, veterans benefits go back to the Revolutionary War era. They became really active after the American Civil War. And ironically, after the American Civil War, there was an act that happened in 1888. And in 1888, Congress decided that no veterans representative could make more than $10 in representing veterans. Now, Justice Stevens in 1972, looking at the history of veterans law and that fee provision said that $10 was an approximation of about $1,500 in 1888. And what had happened to cause this was there were a lot of people because they could read and fill out the two-page veterans form were taking this outlandish sum, $10. And Congress just thought that was egregious and decided that they were going to limit benefits because veterans shouldn't have to pay to have representation. That caused these service organizations to come into being. So think the Disabled American Veterans, the American Legion, the Veterans of Foreign Wars, And they developed what was called veteran service officers because you couldn't find an attorney, unless you had a friend who was going to do it pro bono for you, to represent you before the Department of Veterans Affairs because they couldn't be paid. And that statute stayed the same for about 100 years. And that's why you didn't see lawyers involved in veterans cases until Congress in 1988, subsequent to the Vietnam War and subsequent to a lot of complaints from Vietnam-era veterans about not being able to obtain representation, decided, all right, we're going to let attorneys get involved once we've given the VA one shot at it. So we, you can get a fee after the veteran's gone through the administrative process, and we're going to create a new court. And they created a new court. It was an appellate court, a specialized appellate court that would review veterans' cases. And the VA was one of the last federal agencies to have any kind of appellate review. Prior to 1988, if you were a veteran and you didn't like what the VA did, you had nowhere to go. You had no court to go to. You just had no no right to appeal. No right to appeal to any court. Wow. You just had to go back to the VA and try again. Well, that kind of sets separate veterans apart separately, it seems to me, and their constitutional rights to access to the courts and, and their constitutional right to, well, their rights. Was, is, that, is that the way of putting it? Yeah. In 2006, the law was further changed. So as I said, in 1988, you had to go through the entire process. And what 
became readily apparent to those of us who practiced after that change and to the court and to Congress was that really you needed to get advocates involved at an earlier stage. Getting them involved at the very last stage in appellate review was not fixing anything. The VA was just not changing and they were very hesitant. The VA, by the way, most people don't realize this. It's the second largest federal agency behind the Department of Defense. It is a huge agency, predominantly because of the medical centers and the number of employees that they have there. The Veterans Benefits Administration, which administers the decisions on things like education, vocational rehabilitation, and then also on compensation and pension, they're only about 20% of the actual total agency staff. So only 20%, one in five staff are dedicated to what you just said, more of the administrative rights benefits, where four out of five are dedicated to providing healthcare services. Yes. There's also smaller entities within the VA. So the one that comes to mind is the VA Cemetery Administration. So also managing those cemeteries, that's a small portion of the number of employees. So it isn't exactly 80%. It's less than that. But by far, the largest organization is the Veterans Health Administration that runs the medical centers. Well, you touch on an interesting point here in mentioning these two things. How broad is uh, veterans law? How many categories of veterans law are there? So you have the area that I predominantly practice in, which is compensation. And compensation, sometimes people refer to it as service-connected. The statutory term is actually compensation. And then there's also what's called pension. Now, pension, a lot of people associate with the nursing homes, because if you are in need of nursing home care then, and you served during a period of war, you're entitled to a pension. That is normally called non-service-connected. But there's a whole host of benefits. So there's education benefits available. During our most recent war, Congress changed the GI Bill to be a little more inclusive and allow for payment of greater benefits for education. Kind of hearkening back to that GI Bill after World War II that allowed a lot of people who might not have had the means to go to college and get a degree. There's also vocational rehabilitation. So if you've been injured in the line of duty on active duty, you can get rehabilitated by the VA. There are also survivor's benefits, a program called Dependency Indemnity Compensation. So as we abbreviate everything that we do in the VA, that's Delta, India, Charlie. And that's for survivors of veterans who meet certain criteria. In general, if you've died from a service-connected condition and you're the widow, you can apply for a benefit. Now, is it going to be as lucrative as the veteran's benefit? No, but it's a recognition by Congress that as a thanks, a gratitude of the country for your service, we will make sure that your widow has a benefit if you die of a service-connected condition. Healthcare is an interesting animal. So there is what's called the Mission Act, and the Mission Act was passed during the Trump administration. The Mission Act was in response to veterans not being able to get timely health care through the VA Health Administration. There is an excellent story in USA Today on the Mission Act and what has happened. And I think it is a good illustration of what happens with this large federal agency. It's, it's a good illustration of what happens with any large organization. The Mission Act was designed to allow veterans to seek private care in a set number of circumstances. 
And those set number of circumstances were geographic, if you lived more than 75 miles away from a VA health facility, and they were time. So if you couldn't see the specialist, and it varies by specialist what the time limits are, that you then, with the referral from your primary care physician at the VA, could go seek private care out in the community. So the idea behind the law was very good. It was to allow veterans to procure community health services. What's been the reaction? In some quarters, what the reaction, according to this investigation by USA Today, and confirmed anecdotally by people I've talked to, is that the VA is hesitant to send people out because it takes money away from their people and their organization. You can appeal these decisions, and the VA Health Administration is not used to having people appeal anything. They are very unused to having people appeal. When this law was about set to go into enactment, VA had a working team. I happened to be in a group, the National Organization of Veterans Advocates, that had one of its training seminars. And one of the sessions we had was run by a very experienced practitioner who had worked for Paralyzed Veterans of America. And it had the gentleman from VA who was responsible for kind of overseeing the appeal process that VA was implementing with the health administration. The experienced attorney in the room who had decades of experience had done, as I recall, two healthcare cases in her career. That was the experienced person in the room because most of us didn't have any experience asking the healthcare administration to do these things. But I will say this, the veterans do have a right to appeal some of these healthcare decisions. They certainly can't appeal a medical diagnosis, a medical conclusion, but they can appeal these healthcare decisions that are being made and how they're able to access care through the VA as a result of the Mission Act. Is there a flowchart for veterans that helps them understand, or at least I'm trying to visualize everything that you've just outlined to us and all the entities within the broader federal organization? Like, I I don't I feel like I need a roadmap to <laughs> to really grasp how big this is and where those different trails go. And if you get denied here, how this is the path that you get to appeal. Is there any sort of resource or is that why having an advocate from this, the beginning is so important? So I think having an advocate from the beginning is important. Unfortunately, that law that changed, if you want to pay a private attorney, you do have to still wait for a first initial denial. So you do have to file, and the VA has become uh, much more form-centric. Everything has a form. Now, can you find the form on the VA.gov website? I would say maybe if you know what you're looking for. A lot of times, if you get what's called veteran service organizations involved at the initial level, that is one of the key things they help you with, is they get the right form so that you're not denied just because it's not on the right piece of paper. And you're not just on what we affectionately call the gerbil wheel, spinning your wheels and going nowhere. And it's very frustrating. So your question was, I believe, is there a roadmap? The VA has a website, and I find it usable because... I've been doing this for 29 years. I'm not sure how usable it is to the ordinary veteran who is trying to file their claim for the first time. I do think having an advocate, whether that be a veteran service officer, whether that be, you know, in this state, we have the University of Missouri at Columbia that has a law clinic that will help with cases. 
There is uh, an organization called the National Veterans Legal Services Project that also will pair you up with an attorney who can help you pro bono with your case. There's also something called the Pro Bono Consortium that will help you. The ABA has a website devoted to veterans and has a resource that links you to people who are willing to help. The sad fact is the last time I looked in Missouri, you mentioned that 8% of the population is veterans. For every one of me who's trained and an, an accredited attorney and does the compensation and pension piece, there's around 6,000 veterans. And I'm a solo practitioner. I cannot represent 6,000 veterans. So I rely upon these other organizations and these other resources because the veterans really need help. It's, it's very complex. And when we talk about the appeal process in the benefits side, you'll see just how complex it gets. How common are denials that then require a veteran to appeal? Is that something that's more prevalent and that's why you know, we see the need for, for advocates? So it's, it's my editorial opinion that the VA is sloppy. What do I mean by sloppy? I mean that one of the things as an attorney that you never want to be accused of is getting the facts wrong. The VA, the decisions I review, get the facts wrong a lot. Sometimes that's just due to this paper-bound system where the veteran does not have enough room on the piece of paper to tell their story. Sometimes the form doesn't ask the real story they want to know for the veteran to prevail. And then sometimes it's just the VA is under pressure to get decisions out because they have a backlog and they're just going fast and they just literally get it wrong. I do, as I mentioned, I do Social Security Disability I rarely see a factual misstatement. I might disagree with how something is to be interpreted, but I rarely see a factual misstatement in a Social Security decision. In other words, a doctor says this diagnosis, except that's not what the doctor said. Those are the types of errors I see in VA decisions where they literally can get the diagnosis wrong. They can get a positive opinion as a negative opinion and just completely get the facts wrong. And sometimes they perpetuate themselves where a lot of the times an advocate spends a lot of time just getting the facts straight for the VA to understand what the case is about. You mentioned a little while ago that uh, the, the VA is often reluctant to let people seek outside help because it takes money away from them. Is there any kind of a time limit on how long the VA can hold someone without allowing them to seek outside help? So this Mission Act has a whole set of parameters that are supposed to be followed. The uh, VA has what's called their M21. This is their manual, kind of like an operations book. It tells you what to do in any particular situation. But then there's also directives that come from the various directors of the medical centers. There are regional directors, and then you have the national people who also issue directives. I used to work for GE, so I, I get the problem with communication in a large organization. And that communication doesn't always filter down to the frontline person who has to execute it. But there are parameters, there are timelines for these appeals that the veterans, if they were aware of them, would be able to exercise. I'm just not sure that they're aware of them and actually may be misdirected by the VA employees themselves. As I said, if you ref if you look at this USA Today investigation, 
you will find that there is actual misinformation being given to veterans about what they have the right to do as a result of this act from 2018. You also mentioned a little while ago about uh, people who die from service-caused conditions. Who makes that decision? That is a decision. That's one of the elements of a claim for dependency indemnity compensation. That's one of the elements is uh, establishing that the veteran did in fact die from that condition or it was a contributing cause to death. The VA, it's interesting, the federal circuit has said that this is a unique pro-veteran set of laws. This is a extraordinarily liberalized remedial statute, this set of laws. And it's special, and it's special in a number of ways. It's designed to give the veteran the benefit of the doubt. Now, does that mean that if the evidence is 80-20, 80 against your claim and 24, that they're going to give you the balance and say, okay, we're going to give you the benefit of the doubt and you win? No. It means if there is a relative balance of evidence, and one of those views represents the veteran, that ties go to the veteran. But it's not only that, it's also that the veterans law has a number of things in it that are called presumptions. And presumptions are legal elements that are satisfied if you establish a certain set of facts. So the most recent one, a real easy example. In August, the secretary of VA announced that if you serve during a specified period of time, in the Persian Gulf, and it's a little more expansive geography than just the Persian Gulf, but for our purposes, let's just say the Persian Gulf. Between the years 2001 and today, and you have the conditions of allergic rhinitis, chronic sinusitis, or asthma, we will presume you got those conditions as a result of exposure to what they call particulate matter, very polluted air, very different than here. It's very arid. So a lot of stuff is in the air because it's, it's decayed and it just is so light it's in the air. And then they don't have the environmental protections we have. So the air over there is much nastier. But they, we will presume that you have been exposed to air and as a result, those conditions will be service-connected. So it's basically a diagnosis and looking at your service record and seeing, were you there? You can't have been dishonorably discharged. That is a bar to getting any benefits. You have to have not been dishonorably discharged. That will be, you can't get benefits. But that doesn't mean if you've had a general discharge, you can't get benefits. You can. And then the VA has to make an independent decision as to whether your discharge actually was less than honorable. So it's an independent decision on the part of the VA, but that is always something that I want to bring up that you do have to have service that is not dishonorable. And you do have to have incurred your injury or there has to have been an event during active duty. So you can't have been in the reserves and inactive, can't be in the National Guard. But with that said, during this last war that we fought, there was more activization of reservists and National Guard members than at any point in history. And I bring this up because reserve units and guard units were not used to keeping the documentation needed to establish active duty in many cases and where their service members were and to keep the records as to injuries and events. The active duty military was used to doing that and had been doing it for quite some time. So reservists and National Guard, 
they may have had activated service and may have injured themselves and may think, well, I can't do anything except look at retirement, disability retirement through the the reserve unit or the National Guard unit I served in, but that's not correct. If they were activated for federal service, and it doesn't matter whether they went over to the Persian Gulf, just that they were activated and that their injury occurred during active duty. That's a great point because I know many serve in the reserves with the Missouri National Guard. And as you said, I hadn't realized that as many or more than ever in history before had been called to active duty. Yeah, in fact, many of them have been called four or five times. Multiple times, yes. I've heard some pretty some pretty bad horror stories over at the Capitol about that. I would love to dive into a bit more of the area that you practice in, referencing the service-connected compensation and the non-service-connected pension benefits. Can you describe how those differ from one another and, and what those entail? Sure. Compensation benefits. You... As I said, you need to have served on active duty, need to have not been uh, dishonorably discharged. And then compensation requires three elements. It requires an injury or event in service, or as we've talked about, the presumption for rhinitis, chronic sinusitis, and asthma, or a presumption that removes your need to prove that. Second element is a current diagnosis. Third element is a nexus or a connection between what happened in service, the event or injury, and what's wrong today. That's a service-connected claim. If, uh, if you want to think of it in another paradigm for attorneys, certainly, maybe for the general public, it's workers' comp for the military. You've got to have a work-related injury, you've got to have a diagnosis, and there's got to be a connection. Now, if you are approved, you meet all those qualifications, you're approved, does that cover only your, your expenses or treatment or compensation for healthcare or other resources needed for that particular injury, disease, diagnosis, or do you receive full coverage of all your healthcare needs? Good question. What you get is you get what's called a rating for each one of those. So similar to workers' comp where they're playing percentages, the VA has in the Code of Federal Regulations, Title 38, so 38 CFR is where I live a lot of the time. Um, and there's what's called diagnostic codes. And they start about 38 CFR 4.1. And these diagnostic codes are all these different body systems, musculoskeletal, nervous system, arthritis, the mental illnesses, the muscles, the special senses such as sight, hearing, any kind of chronic disease like respiratory, heart conditions, diabetes. Most of the major disease entities or systems are in these diagnostic codes. And the diagnostic codes all have a four-digit number. And that four-digit number then tells you what body system you're dealing with. And then they have ratings. The ratings are the percentages. So sometimes you'll hear someone say, oh, I'm 30% or I'm 40%. That's Usually them telling you there's a combination of things that add up to that percentage. And we'll get to what's called VA math in just a second. But you get a percentage based upon medical findings. The interesting thing is, is for a lower back condition where you have what's called complete ankylosis, you can get no more than 60%. Now, ankylosis means your back is fixed. You can't move it. So think your lower back that you are at a 30 45 degree angle and you can't move your back. 
most people would tell you in social security land that that would be indicative of a condition that renders you incapable of employment. But the VA goes with these ratings and the court has said and affirmed a number of times that you can't challenge the ratings. So if it is a 60%, that is what you get for that condition. With regards to pension, pension is non-service connected. So you don't have to show an injury or event caused your physical or mental impairment. For a pension, you have to have shown active duty during a period of war. And depending on the year you are claiming, you have to show different periods of service. You, as I said, have to have served during a period of war. And the period of war wars are prescribed by regulation. And then you have to show that you have the inability to engage in substantial gainful employment as a result of those non-service connected impairments. It's, again, it's a thank you note from Congress for those who serve during a period of war if you have no other income, because it's also income sensitive. If you have no other income, we will give you these pension benefits. It is similar to the SSI program on the Social Security side. So the SSI program is similar to the disability program. You have to have a physical or mental impairment that prevents you from working for 12 continuous months or is expected to result in death. But the SSI side, like the pension side, has an income piece. So the pension side has an offset for any income. A lot of times I see someone come to me who has SSI who is not getting a pension and says, well, there's really no point because I'm getting the SSI. But there is a point because the pension benefit is closer to $1,000 a month. The SSI benefit is around 800 a month. The other thing that makes a pension benefit much more robust than an SSI benefit is that a pension benefit calls, comes with auxiliary benefits, your spouse, your children. You can get more money into your home based upon receipt of that pension benefit, whereas SSI, only the impaired person gets paid. No auxiliaries, no, no spouse, no children. You, you have only yours. If you have a Social Security decision that says you've been found disabled, by statute, the VA says, assuming you served during that requisite period of time on active duty during a period of war, that you are qualified for a pension benefit. That's all you have to do is take your Social Security decision to the VA, fill out the right form, and you can immediately bump your benefit up to that VA amount. Those are the two major differences, though, in the programs. One's like workers' comp. It rewards active duty service members for an event or injury and gives you a percentage of income, a percentage, a monthly payment, if you will, of benefits as a result of that injury. The pension benefit is a monthly benefit based upon you're not able to work as a result of physical and mental impairments. And it's a thank you for having served during a period of war just to make sure you have a certain minimum income. Are these benefits livable amounts? Well, $1,000 a month, $800 a month, that's not going to buy you a lot. Sometimes people ask me or sometimes people have the mis conception that these benefits are tax exempt. They are not tax exempt. They, there is a graduated tax for both benefits, federal income tax, and in both cases, they look at household income. So if your spouse is earning a good wage, your VA benefits are probably going to be taxable. 
So generally, if you're making less than $25,000 a year as a household, the benefits are not taxable. And then it graduates to where they are taxable fully after about, I want to say, $35,000 a year. Those are gross wages, not net. Sometimes people think, oh, well, I'm bringing home. I'm not making that. Well, you kind of need to look at the gross amount, not the net. How do they calculate the benefits? Is, is this a schedule, a printed schedule? Or is it a matter of, or do they try to figure out how much you would have made had you been 100% healthy? Let's go into the theory behind the benefits. So what the benefit is designed to do is to award you for the loss of industrial and social ability. Or put another way, it's to award a benefit based upon the degree of social and employment impairment. So when you have a 30% benefit on a compensation claim, what the VA has basically said is 70% of jobs are still available for you to do. In their opinion, as the court has said, you cannot challenge the ratings themselves. And if you went back to the VA, there may be something, I am unaware of it, where they did some scientific study that said, all right, if your back is ankylosed at this, this angle, there's still these jobs that you can do. I'm, I'm not sure there's a study where they actually went through and did that. So those numbers, though, are not challengeable. What you can do is... There is a regulation, 38 CFR 4.16, which is called individual unemployability. And what that statute and that reg allows you to do, actually, it's not a statute, it's a reg. It's not actually in the statute. The VA has created it. What that allows you to do is say, all right, I'm not being paid at the 100% rate, but due to the combination of my impairments, I am unable to sustain a competitive full-time job. So 4.16 says if you have one disability and it's rated at 60% and in the VA's opinion, you can't work, we'll pay you at the 100% rate. If you have a combination of impairments that adds up to 70% and at least one of them is 40%, we'll pay you if we think you can't work. So the VA making a decision as to whether someone can't work or not is complex. and. In the past, they have used a shorthand that sometimes their physicians have said somebody could do sedentary work. There was a case that was decided in 2019 called Ray, where the court said, you know, we've asked you to define this substantial gainful occupation phrase for decades, and you haven't done so. We're not telling you you have to use Social Security regulations, but we think they're a good framework. And until you define it, and you're certainly free to define it, we're going to use that as a framework and you need to look at economic and non-economic factors. So the economic factor is basically looking at some, whether someone is earning at poverty level and whether there are special considerations. Special considerations. Think sheltered workshop. But also think you're working for a buddy who, if the buddy wasn't charitable, you wouldn't have a job. The buddy is just being nice. Those are special accommodations. The interesting thing about VA math, you can't just add it in a linear fashion. So if you have a rating of 40, 30, and 20, mathematically that adds up to 90, right? That's not the way you're going to get paid. 
So we're going to demystify this whole concept called VA math. VA math is based on a table. It's called the combined rating table that is in the regulations. Here is the premise of the combined rating table. I don't ask that you agree with it. I only explain it because this is their paradigm. So you've got a 40. In the VA's mind, that means you have 60% of your body left. That's good. 60 times 30 is what? 18. So you take the 40 plus 18, it's 58. 58 is more than halfway, so a 40 plus a 30 is 60. You then take the 58 and you look at the 42% that's left. Well, 30 times 42, I think, is 12. 12 plus 58 is 70. So a 90 becomes a 70. The VAs thought there is a regulation. There is, some, there is some language in the statute that they are not to what's called pyramid. And they take this very seriously. They would not want to pay you twice for the same disability. That is their reasoning behind this combined rating table. And that's why when you add up the numbers, the veterans, this is probably the number one or two question I get. You know, the VA doesn't understand math, Mr. Bunton. <laughs> they understand it only too well. That's the paradigm, though, or the framework behind that combined rating table. It is a recognition we don't want a pyramid, and we're only paying you on the impairment on the good part of your body left because we wouldn't want to pay you twice. Individual unemployability is then the other side of that coin where if you can establish that you have a combination of impairments that prevents you from working, they will pay you at the 100% rate if you're less than 100%. In that case, then, the diagnostic codes, limitations, and findings don't really matter anymore. You are merely looking at the issue of whether somebody has the inability to work, and you're looking at the economic, as I said, and you're looking at the non-economic. So non-economic is similar to a social security analysis. You're looking at the exertional and non-exertional impairments. You're looking at their ability to sit, how long they can stand, how long they can walk, and how long they can use their arms, their hands whether they can lift, carry, bend, stoop, kneel, crawl, but then also all the mental things involved in work, such as their ability to learn, their ability to carry out instructions consistently, their ability to interact reliably and consistently with the general public, coworkers, and supervisors, their ability to adapt, their ability to respond to stressful situations, and their ability to concentrate and maintain pace. In the event that the VA determines that a veteran can work, are there special protections against discrimination of that veteran, or are they protected under the American Disabilities Act? So the Americans Dis with Disabilities Act certainly applies and would apply to them. The government, ironically, the ADA does not apply to them. However, the Rehabilitation Act of 1974 does apply. To the government, and it has many of the same protections as the Americans with Disabilities Act. You know, my impression after listening to you talk is that I'm glad I'm I'm glad I'm not a veteran because I don't know if I can put up with this stuff. Do, do you deal in a lot of frustration with your clients? Well, a lot of frustration, and it's just they will read the decisions very differently than I do, which I'm sure is not different than many areas of the law. But I like to get down to what the really simple parts are. 
And so one of the things I hear veterans say all the time when I ask them, well, did you tell the VA about that medical evidence you just told me about? Well, they should have it. Well, I agree they should have it. But when I look at this section in the decision, it's not listed. Did you go and get it? And they'll always ask me, well, why? The VA told me they would get it. Well, they kind of tell you they'll get it. What they really do is they send you a letter. and This is almost incomprehensible. They will send a letter out saying they will make a request for your medical records, but woe is us. We're the poor VA. We can't afford to pay for the medical records. So if the doctor doesn't send them to us or the healthcare provider doesn't send them to us for free, we're not going to get them and you'll have to. That kind of gets missed by a lot of veterans. In the social security arena at the initial stage, certainly they will obtain the medical records and pay for them. So it's, it's somewhat of a wall in terms of getting the benefit, uh, getting the benefits and getting the evidence. Certainly the VA will attempt to get VA records. They are also under a duty. There was a statute passed in about 2008 that was the duty to assist the Veterans Claims Assistance Act. And that act said, we're going to get at a minimum all your VA records that you properly identify. You don't have to worry about getting those. And we will get your service medical records if they can be obtained. And we will use due diligence to obtain them. Well, their due diligence is they will make one request and one follow-up, and they are done. And then it is your responsibility as the claimant to obtain that evidence. One of the simplest things and most frustrating things for the veterans is they thinking the government has everything. And theoretically, if it's your personnel file from the military, if it's your service medical records, they should. I agree with the veterans. They should have everything. But easily, I would say 75% of the cases I see, evidence is missing that has not been obtained. And that is one of the biggest things veterans need assistance with is understanding. Don't wait on the VA to get the evidence. Go get it, submit it, submit it with a return receipt so you can prove you delivered it and when. Because it makes a difference at times as to your effective date of your award as to when they receive that evidence. It's, it's been quite a while since there was a big fire at the Military Records Center in St. Louis County. A lot of records were destroyed at that point. Has that made things more difficult for veterans even this far out uh, since that fire? It has. With that said, there is in St. Louis, in uh, North County, in the, old, in the Spanish Lake area, there was an old gem, Government Employee Mart. And on that site, the National Archives has a state-of-the-art facility that houses what was the National Personnel Records Center. And they have actual archivists who have, over the last decade, restored some of those burned records. So if you are a veteran who was told your records have been destroyed and you have not checked in 20 years, you might want to recheck because they might have restored yours. And this becomes another, we talked about the pro-veteran nature of the law. So there is a regulation that states, if you obtain relevant service department records and we change our mind, we'll take your effective date back to the date of your original claim when we couldn't get the records. There was just a case in 2019 called Kaisor, K-I-S-O-R. That was what that case was about. It was about what the word relevant meant. So it isn't necessarily service department medical records. It just says service department records, but it has that qualifier relevant. So it has been interpreted 
currently as requiring it changes our minds and went to one of the elements why you were denied before. So you've mentioned making sure that a veteran, when getting ready to apply, works with likely a service organization advocate that can make sure that they have the right forms. You just mentioned you should go and collect your own records and submit those and get a confirmation receipt of when they were delivered. What other things should they be doing or know to do or think to do when first applying? As I indicate to veterans when I'm representing them, I'm here to help you tell your story in a very structured way. And that structured way is helping them procure evidence that supports what they have to say. So first of all, they need to say, where was the injury or event? And the more specific they can be, the better. Now, sometimes it was during combat. They might have been wounded and were unconscious. So they don't know everything that happened and when. But the closer they can get in terms of time and date, place, unit they were with, those are all very helpful. And if you look at the application form that they now utilize, they don't ask for a lot of information. They don't give you very much room to tell that part of your story. The other critical piece, I think, is third-party evidence. The court has emphasized over and over and over again that lay evidence, non-medical evidence, from family, friends who knew you before and after is critical when it's an easily observable condition. So it can't be a medical conclusion like a diagnosis, but it can be something like Jane was a very happy person when she went into service and she came out and all she ever did was go into her room and cry. That's something a layperson can observe and offer the VA an opinion on. That symptomatology is what's important. And that continuity of symptomatology on certain conditions can become critical. But establishing what the veteran was like before and after service and that there was a definite change, that's, that's very important. A subset of that is buddy statements. These are third-party observations, usually involving whether an event or injury occurred in service. And these can be from fellow service members who saw you while you were on active duty and were in the same unit with you and could say, well, I remember Joe and we were working on this half track and yeah, the jack came out from underneath the half track and Joe's hand was caught under the hub of the wheel for a few minutes. That's something that your buddies can observe and those statements are also taken very, very seriously. Again, the VA form doesn't do a very good job of asking for those, but those can mean the difference between winning and losing, having those third-party statements. How long should I, if, or a veteran, when they apply, how long is that initial process before they get their first decision, either a thumbs up or thumbs down? At the initial level right now, the VA says, and I would agree for the most part, that you're going to get an initial decision within four to six months. Generally, you'll file, they will get your VA medical records, they will attempt to get your service personnel file where you served, your DD-214 and they will take a look. They may send you out for what's called a C&P examination, compensation and pension, where one of the VA doctors or a nurse practitioner will offer an opinion as to whether or not your condition is connected to your injury or event. You file and then you get what's called a rating decision. That's your initial decision. And that's what takes that four to six months then if you want to appeal, there's a very big fork in the road between pre 
February 2019 and post-February 2019. So the Appeals Modernization and Improvement Act became effective February 19th of 2019. That gave veterans five options of appeal for each claim. Prior to that, it was a very linear process. So let's go through what's called legacy. That's the prior adjudication process. It's much easier to understand because it's linear. So let's just start off with a veteran who has three claims and they're all denied at the rating decision. The veteran then under the legacy system had one year to file what was called a notice of disagreement. The notice of disagreement just needed to say that he wanted appellate review and that he disagreed with the decision. If he wanted to give or she wanted to give reasons, that was perfectly acceptable. They didn't have to. The veteran at that point could also request a hearing as an option before a decision review officer, a DRO. Those time, the timeline for those varied greatly from a month to years. If you were going to, well, the next decision that you received was a statement of the case. The statement of the case then was another decision. If, if it was a denial, your next step was to file a VA Form 9 to perfect your appeal to the Board of Veterans' Appeals in Washington, D.C. The VA Form 9 had to be filed within the remainder of the year from the rating decision or within 60 days of the date of the statement of the case. You also had an option to have a hearing at the board. If you wanted a hearing at the board, you would wait two to three years. Likelihood, you will wait two to three years anyway, whether you wanted a hearing or not. The board was the first step in the process where you hit a lawyer. The veterans law judges are all lawyers. They sit in D.C. There are about 120 of them at the moment. If you lost at the board, then your appeal step was to file a notice of appeal within 120 days to the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. And then if you lost at the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims, your appeal was to the federal circuit. Now, with the new law, you have five choices. So let's say they deny those three claims. Each of those claims, you have five options to choose from. Those options are higher level review, supplemental claim. And then the VA would say that you really only have three choices, but I would say it's five because there's three sub options in filing a notice of disagreement. And the notice of disagreements go to the board. And the notice of disagreement can be for a direct review. The Notice of disagreement can be for new evidence, and the notice of disagreement could be for a hearing before a veterans law judge. Each of those has a time associated with it. The VA, in discussing this law with Congress and providing input, said they had heard loud and clear that veterans wanted their decisions faster. So they said they could make them faster if you didn't submit new evidence and if you didn't request a hearing. The fastest options now are higher level review. Higher level review means you've submitted no evidence and you're just asking someone else to take another look at it. And there are super regional centers in Tampa, St. Pete, and Seattle, Tacoma. They're talking about adding a third where the people who were formerly decision review officers are now sitting and making new decisions. You will get a decision on one of those in four to six months. If you want the supplemental evidence lane, that means you're adding evidence and one of these DROs will review it. And I would say you'll get a decision on that within eight to 12 months. If you go to the board and have the direct review, the direct review is like higher level review. You're adding no new evidence and you're just saying, 
Board of Veterans Appeals, Veterans Law Judge, there was a mistake made factually, legally. Here's what we think it is. Make a decision. And you are stuck with the evidence before the rating office. If you want a evidence review lane, then you are adding new evidence. You have to add it within 90 days of filing your appeal. And then you can file for a hearing, which everybody agrees takes the longest amount of time, two to three years to get a board hearing. Higher level review, supplemental claim, notice of disagreement, any of the one, any of the three lanes. You have one year from that rating decision to file your appeal. But you can choose different options for the different claims. So let's just say you think it's a no-brainer on one of the issues. You file a higher level review because you think, okay, they're going to get it. It's just a factual issue and it's a complete misstatement of the facts. This should be easy. Let's go with the fastest option and move forward. If you think it's more complex and the veteran needs to tell their story, you may go with the slowest appearing option, which is the two to three years. What has the VA found in nearly two years of this law? Cheryl Mason presented. She's the chairman, and that's the statutory title in the law for her position in the VA. Cheryl is obviously not a man, but that's the title. So she emphatically calls herself chairman. She indicated that most of the appeals being filed are being filed for the veterans law judge hearing, which is just baffling them. Until they look at the numbers, which they have not analyzed in depth, but if you want to know your best chances of having a favorable appeal, it is the hearing option, which is why I recommend it routinely because you get the facts right, you get all the observations, you get the veterans testimony, you get the veterans law judge, ask all the questions you want. He or she was there. They can answer these questions. And you quickly clear up things that you may spend time on these shorter appearing appeals multiple times that will add up to two to three years. And then you're still waiting two to three years for a board hearing to get the right decision. What's a veteran to do while they wait for this two to three years? Well, are there other resources available to them? There are other resources available since the VA program, the compensation program, a lot of times involves only a partial disability. Many of the veterans I represent actually are working. Many of the veterans that I represent who are trying for individual unemployability are already on social security disability. And let's, let's just take a chance to talk about that because that's another misconception people have. If you're getting compensation and you also worked and were entitled to social security disability, there's no offset. You can get both. As we've already discussed, however, with a pension and SSI, there is an offset because of the income requirement on both the pension and the SSI. But if it's a disability claim, compensation claim, you can get both of those. Short of that, most of the veterans that I know rely upon friends and family. It's, it's just and other community resources. It's sad if you're waiting that long. And I have to, in good conscience, when I'm looking, recommend, in general, the hearing option because I think it's the best option. You cannot have a hearing at any one of the other levels. You are allowed to have an informal hearing with these higher level reviewers, but it's a telephonic hearing and the veteran is not involved. It's just you making the legal argument and pointing things out. There's mixed reviews on my peers who have tried that. I have not been particularly successful in having that option play out with a informal conference. Do you ever come across a case where somebody seeks benefits retroactively, where I guess they say, I've had this condition for 20 years and now it's gotten bad. Can, can I file and get benefits back 20 years? Absent very, very limited circumstances, your effective date is the date you file. If you waited 20 years, you waited 20 years. 
you have ripped yourself off. So there are some regulations, some older regulations that talk if you filed for Social Security benefits that there was a, a joint Social Security VA application and that it was being sent to both agencies. It may or may not have been. So absent some very limited circumstances, your effective date is governed by the date you've actually filed, regardless of how long you've had it. Farah, I think we've just about scratched the surface here. Yeah, I wanted to ask one more question because this is to date, as far as our episodes, this is clearly, I I mean, there are vast areas of the law that are complicated, but my mind is spinning right now. I would just love to know what drew you to practice in this very complicated area of the law. Total serendipity. So I was at a social security law conference and I went to a session. There was an attorney out of Arkansas, Jim Stanley, and Jim's probably 15 years older than me. And Jim got up and he was saying, listen, there is not enough attorneys practicing in this area. And if you're doing social security law, I would really invite you to take a look and see what this is because these veterans really, really, really need help. This was in 1991. My immediate thought was it sounded a lot like what I was doing with Social Security. It's obtaining medical records. It's looking at people's impairments. It's getting people to tell their stories. So a lot of the same skill set. And I thought, okay, either A, you can't make any money doing it, or B, there's no clients. Well, I'm happy to report that neither are true. And after doing my due diligence and getting trained and getting cases and winning many, many cases... I will just tell you, it is one of the most rewarding areas of law. I routinely will tell members of the general public, friends, people at church, business people that I meet at Chamber of Commerce, what I do. And, you know, I don't get a negative lawyer comment. I usually get, gosh, thanks for what you do for the veterans. That is just so great that you do that. And I have to say the veterans are so just very, very grateful and thankful for the work because I try to make it as simple as I can. But One paradigm you might use is when they are asked to appeal each and every claim, if they have three claims, it's three to the fifth power number of permutations as to where their appeal can go. Or another way to think of it is the fifth dimension. I didn't take physics in high school, so I had to actually look up what was the fifth dimension. And it is very theoretical and very obtuse, which I would say is a lot like practicing veterans law. You have to just kind of dive in and experience it and know it's a big organization. You really still are just telling your client's story and advocating for them. And you just kind of need to know some of these bells and whistles that are useful, these regulations that are designed to remedy the injuries that our service men and women have suffered as a result of their service to our country. Jeff, this is a topic we might have to revisit somewhere down the road. There's a lot more to talk about, I think. But uh, we want to thank you for being on this edition of Visit Legal 2, and, uh, and uh, maybe we'll get back together again soon. I would love to do that. Thank you very much for having me today. Thank you. Is It Legal 2 is a special production of the Missouri Bar, and we've just explored some veterans' legal issues. Our thanks to Creve Court Attorney Jeff Button for helping us and you understand some of the law and some of the programs that affect veterans. Vera? There are some resources you might want to check out. If you want to learn more about the law and veterans, or if you have other legal questions, we encourage you to visit MissouriLawyersHelp.org. That's MissouriLawyersHelp.org, where you can find an array of information on various legal topics to help you better understand the law. Tony Simons, the Missouri Bar Citizenship Education Director, is here to share more. 
there is a misconception that goes like this. Because we have a wonderful constitution, this means that every case applying the constitution will have a wonderful conclusion. Unfortunately, that is not the case. Sometimes the constitution demands that we reach a conclusion in a particular case that is hard to swallow. In fact, a case involving veterans' benefits illustrates this reality. The Constitution gives Congress the power to limit the kinds of cases the federal courts will hear on appeal. This is precisely what Congress did in the case of veterans' benefits. Congress created a system in which most courts would be forbidden to get involved. Instead, Congress, using the power given to it by the Constitution, elected to place judicial review of claims related to the provision of veterans' benefits beyond the reach of almost all courts and within the exclusive purview of the United States Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims and the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. Under the law, only these courts could rule on cases involving veterans' benefits. But what happens when that system fails the very veterans it was designed to protect? Must the courts continue to sit on the sidelines and do nothing? After 9-11 and the ensuing military actions in Iraq and Afghanistan, many veterans returned home, having experienced both physical and psychological injuries. As one court noted, veterans who return home from war suffering from psychological maladies are entitled by law to disability benefits to sustain themselves and their families as they regain their health. Yet, it takes an average of more than four years for a veteran to fully adjudicate a claim for benefits. During that time, many claims are mooted by deaths. The delays have worsened in recent years as the influx of injured troops returning from deployment in Iraq and Afghanistan has placed an unprecedented strain on the VA and has overwhelmed the system that it employs to provide medical care to veterans and to process their disability benefits claims. For veterans and their families, such delays cause unnecessary grief. And for some veterans, most notably those suffering from combat-derived mental illnesses such as post-traumatic stress disorder, these delays may make the difference between life and death. Dissatisfied with this situation, two nonprofit organizations, Veterans for Common Sense and Veterans United for Truth, brought suit in the Northern District of California in 2007. They argued that delays in the provision of mental health care and the adjudication of service connected death and disability compensation claims by the Veterans Administration violated veterans' due process rights to receive the care and benefits they are guaranteed by statute for harms and injuries sustained while serving our country. This lawsuit asked the federal court in California to act in disregard of the system designed by Congress. The federal district court judge who heard this case refused to do so, writing, for veterans who pursue an appeal to completion, it takes an average of 1,419 days to receive a final decision. Although these delays are substantial, the existing statutory framework and case law prevent this court from taking action. 
any order by this court relating to the sufficiency and timeliness of mental health care would effectively draw this court into the position of overseeing aspects of the VA, something the Supreme Court has expressly prohibited. The veterans groups appealed to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and their case was heard by a three-judge panel. This group of judges was more willing to take on the status quo and ruled in favor of the veterans, writing, There comes a time when the political branches have so completely and chronically failed to respect the people's constitutional rights that the courts must be willing to enforce them. We have reached that unfortunate point with respect to veterans who are suffering from hidden or not hidden wounds of war. The VA's unchecked incompetence has gone on long enough. No more veterans should be compelled to agonize or perish while the government fails to perform its obligations. Having chosen to honor and provide for our veterans by guaranteeing them the mental health care and other critical benefits to which they are entitled, the government may not deprive them of that support through unchallengeable and interminable delays. Because the VA continues to deny veterans what they have been promised without affording them the process due to them under the Constitution, our duty is to compel the agency to provide the procedural safeguards that will ensure their rights. When the stakes are so high for so many we must, with whatever reluctance, fulfill our obligation to take this extraordinary step. The government then asked the entire Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals to get involved. This decision went in favor of the government and against the veterans. With the court writing, the veterans' complaint sounds a plaintive cry for help, but it has been misdirected to us. As much as we may wish for expeditious improvement in the way the VA handles mental health care and service-related disability compensation, we cannot exceed our jurisdiction to accomplish it. The Constitution protects us from our own best intentions by dividing power among sovereigns and among branches of government precisely so that we may resist the temptation to concentrate power in one location as an expedient solution to the crisis of the day. There can be no doubt that securing exemplary care for our nation's veterans is a moral imperative. But Congress and the President are in a far better position, in the words of Abraham Lincoln, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan. We would work counter to the political branch's own efforts by undertaking the type of institutional reform that the veterans request. Such responsibilities are left to Congress and the executive and to those specific federal courts charged with reviewing their actions. That is the overriding message of the law, and it is one that we must respect here. The Supreme Court of the United States declined to hear this case, letting the decision against the veterans stand. This particular battle over veterans' benefits exposed fundamental questions about our Constitution. When the method defined by our constitutional system produces a result we find unpalatable and unacceptable, 
Should we reject that result? Does the failure of the political branches justify a greater level of judicial involvement? Finally, when these tough, gut-wrenching cases occur, does it solidify our commitment to our constitutional system? Do we acknowledge the vital nature of the Constitution, even as we recognize the costs associated with that commitment? Or does it create a restlessness within us, one that makes us want to be more result-oriented? Does it make us more inclined to reach for an exception to our constitutional principles when we are uncomfortable with the verdicts they produce? The answer lies in our future and in the choices we make. Nothing further, Your Honor. The more you know about the laws that impact our daily lives, the better decisions you'll be able to make about your life, your family, and your finances. I'm Farah Fight, And I'm Bob Pretty. Join us for another episode of the Missouri Bars podcast, Is It Legal 2? A regular look at our legal system and you.